Chapter 15, Part 2 of A Short Account of the History of Mathematics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Paul King, pjk.scripts.mit.edu forward slash pkj. Pascal among the contemporaries of Descartes, none displayed greater natural genius than Pascal, but his reputation rests more on what he might have done than on what he actually effected, as during a considerable part of his life he deemed it his duty to devote his whole time to religious exercises. Blaise Pascal was born at Clermont on June 19, 1623, and died at Paris on August 19, 1662. His father, a local judge at Claremont and himself of some scientific reputation, moved to Paris in 1631, partly to prosecute his own scientific studies, partly to carry on the education of his only son who had already displayed exceptional ability. Pascal was kept at home in order to assure his not being overworked, and with the same object it was directed that his education should be at first confined to the study of languages and should not include any mathematics. This naturally excited the boy's curiosity, and one day, being then twelve years old, he asked in what geometry consisted. His tutor replied that it was the science of constructing exact figures and of determining the proportions between their different parts. Pascal, stimulated, no doubt, by the injunction against reading it, gave up his playtime to the new study, and in a few weeks had discovered for himself many properties of figures, and in particular the proposition that the sum of the angles of a triangle is equal to two right angles. I have read somewhere, but I cannot lay my hand on the authority, that his proof merely consisted in turning the angular points of a triangular piece of paper over so as to meet in the center of the inscribed circle. A similar demonstration can be got by turning the angular points over so as to meet at the foot of the perpendicular drawn from the biggest angle to the opposite side. His father, struck by this display of ability, gave him a copy of Euclid's Elements, a book which Pascal read with avidity and soon mastered. At the age of fourteen he was admitted to the weekly meetings of Roberval, Mersenne, Midorge, and other French geometricians, from which the French Academy ultimately sprung, being created by ordinance of Louis the Fourteenth on December twenty second, sixteen sixty six. At sixteen, Pascal wrote an essay on conic sections, and in sixteen forty one, at the age of eighteen, he constructed the first arithmetical machine, an instrument which eight years later he further improved and patented. His correspondence with Fermat about this time shews that he was then turning his attention to analytical geometry and physics. He repeated Torricelli's experiments by which the pressure of the atmosphere could be estimated as a weight, and he confirmed his theory of the cause of barometrical variations by obtaining at the same instant readings at different altitudes on the hill of Puy-de-Dôme. In 1650, when in the midst of these researches, Pascal suddenly abandoned his favorite pursuits to study religion, or, as he says in his pensée, 
to contemplate the greatness and the misery of man and about the same time he persuaded the younger of his two sisters to enter the port royal society in sixteen fifty three he had to administer his father's estate he now took up his old life again and made several experiments on pressure exerted by gases and liquids it was also about this period that he invented the arithmetical triangle and together with fermat created the calculus of probabilities he was meditating marriage when an accident again turned the current of his thoughts to a religious life he was driving a foreign hand on november twenty third sixteen fifty four when the horses ran away the two leaders dashed over the parapet of the bridge at Neuilly, and pascal was only saved by the traces breaking always somewhat of a mystic he considered this a special summons to abandon the world he wrote an account of the accident on a small piece of parchment which for the rest of his life he wore next to his heart to perpetually remind him of his covenant and shortly moved to port royal where he continued to live until his death in sixteen sixty two always delicate he had injured his health by his incessant study from the age of seventeen or eighteen he suffered from insomnia and acute dyspepsia and at the time of his death was completely worn out his famous provincial letters directed against the jesuits and his pensee were written towards the close of his life and are the first example of that finished form which is characteristic of the best french literature the only mathematical work that he produced after retiring to port royal was the essay of the cycloid in sixteen fifty eight he was suffering from sleeplessness and a toothache when the idea occurred to him and to his surprise his teeth immediately ceased to ache regarding this as a divine intimation to proceed with the problem he worked incessantly for eight days at it and completed a tolerably full account of the geometry of the cycloid i now proceed to consider his mathematical works in rather greater detail his early essay of the geometry of conics written in sixteen thirty nine but not published until seventeen seventy nine seems to have been founded on the teachings of derogues two of the results are important as well as interesting the first of these is the theorem known now as pascal's theorem namely that if a hexagon is inscribed in a conic the points of the intersection of the opposite sides will lie in a straight line the second which is really due to derogues is that if a quadrilateral be inscribed in a conic and a straight line be drawn cutting the sides taken in order in the points a b c and d and the conic in p and q then p a times p c over p d times p d equals q a times q c over q b times q d pascal's arithmetical triangle known today as pascal's triangle was written in sixteen fifty three but not printed until sixteen sixty five the triangle is constructed as in the annexed figure by the way the annexed figure shows pascal's triangle as being kind of on its side by today's standards uh, a one at the apex followed by a one one and then in the third row one two one and in the fourth row one three three one and in the fifth row one four six four one so they will refer to these lines as diagonal lines 
the horizontal lines the way they're depicted are one 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 two three four five one three six ten fifteen one four ten twenty thirty five and one five fifteen thirty five seventy and they have that written um, in actual rows and columns so taking the latter description each horizontal line being formed from the one above it by making every number in it equal to the sum of those above it and to the left of it in the row immediately above for example in the fourth line twenty is equal to one plus three plus six plus ten then pascal's arithmetical triangle to any required order is got by drawing a diagonal downwards from the right to left as in the figure the numbers are what are now called the figurate numbers those in the first line are called the numbers of the first order those in the second line one two three four five and so on are called natural numbers or numbers of the second order those in the third line numbers of the third order and so on it is easily shown that the mth number in the nth row is m plus n minus 2 factorial divided by m minus 1 factorial times n minus 1 factorial. The numbers in any diagonal give the coefficients of the expansion of a binomial. For example, the figures in the fifth diagonal, namely 1, 4, 6, 4, 1, are the coefficients in the expansion of a plus b raised to the power 4. Pascal used the triangle partly for this purpose, and partly to find the numbers of combinations of m things taken n at a time, which he stated correctly to be n plus 1 times n plus 2 times n plus 3 dot 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 times m divided by m minus n factorial. Perhaps as a mathematician, Pascal is best known in connection with his correspondence with Fermat in 1654, in which he laid down the principles of the theory of probabilities. This correspondence arose from a problem proposed by a gamester, the Chevalier de Mer, to Pascal, who communicated it to Fermat. The problem was this. Two players of equal skill want to leave the table before finishing the game. Their scores and the number of points which constitute the game being given, it is desired to find in what proportion should they divide the stakes. Pascal and Fermat agreed on the answer but gave different proofs. The following is a translation of Pascal's solution. That of Fermat is given later. The following is my method for determining the share of each player when, for example, two players play a game of three points and each player has staked 32 pistoles. Suppose that the first player had gained two points and then the second player one point. They now have to play for a point on this condition, that if the first player gain, he takes all the money which is at stake, namely 64 pistoles, while if the second player gain, each player has two points, so that they are on terms of equality, and if they leave off playing, each ought to take 32 pistoles. Thus, if the first player gain, then 64 pistoles belong to him, and if he loses, then 32 pistoles belong to him. If, therefore, the players do not wish to play this game but to separate without playing it, the first player would say to the second, I am certain of 32 pistoles, even if I lose this game, 
and for the other thirty-two pistoles perhaps I shall have them, and perhaps you will have them. The chances are equal. Let us divide these thirty-two pistoles equally, and give me also the thirty-two pistoles of which I am certain. Thus the first player will have forty-eight pistoles, and the second sixteen pistoles. Next, suppose that the first player has gained two points, and the second player none, and they are about to play for a point. The condition is that, if the first player gain this point, he secures the game and takes sixty-four pistoles, and if the second player gain this point, then the players will be in the situation already examined, in which the first player is entitled to forty-eight pistoles and the second to sixteen pistoles. Thus, if they do not wish to play, the first player would say to the second, if I gain this point, I gain sixty-four pistoles. If I lose it, I am entitled to forty-eight pistoles. Give me, then, the forty-eight pistoles of which I am certain, and divide the other sixteen, since our chances of gaining the point are equal. Thus the first player will have fifty-six pistoles, and the second player eight pistoles. Finally, suppose that the first player had gained one point, and the second player none. If they proceed to play for a point, the condition is that, if the first player gain it, the players will be in the situation first examined, in which the first player is entitled to fifty-six pistoles. If the first player lose the point, each player has then a point, and each is entitled to thirty-two pistoles. Give me the thirty-two pistoles of which I am certain, and divide the remainder of the fifty-six pistoles equally, that is, divide the twenty-four pistoles equally. Thus the first player will have the sum of thirty-two and twelve pistoles, that is, forty-four pistoles, and consequently the second will have twenty pistoles. Pascal proceeds next to consider the similar problem when the game is won by whomever first obtains m plus n points, and one player has m while the other has n points. The answer is obtained by using the arithmetical triangle, or Pascal's triangle. The general solution in which the skill of the players is unequal is given in many modern textbooks on algebra and agrees with Pascal's result, though, of course, the notation of the latter is different and less convenient. Pascal made a most illegitimate use of the new theory in the seventh chapter of his Pensée. He practically puts his argument that, as the value of eternal happiness must be infinite, then even if the probability of a religious life ensuring eternal happiness be very small, still the expectation which is measured by the product of the two must be of sufficient magnitude to make it worth while to be religious. The argument, if worth anything, would apply equally to any religion which has promised eternal happiness to those who accepted its doctrines. If any conclusion may be drawn from the statement, it is the undesirability of applying mathematics to questions of morality of which some of the data are necessarily outside the range of an exact science. It is only fair to add that no one had more contempt than Pascal for those who changed their opinions according to the prospect of material benefit. And this isolated passage is at variance with the spirit of his writings. The last mathematical work of Pascal was that on the cycloid of 1658. 
the cycloid is the curve traced out by the point on the circumference of a circular hoop which rolls along a straight line galileo in 1630 had been the first to call attention to this curve and had suggested that the arches of bridges should be built in the form of it it is a graceful curve but the only bridge with a cycloidal arch of which i have heard is the one built by essex in the grounds of trinity college at cambridge four years later in sixteen thirty four roberval found the area of the cycloid descartes thought little of this solution and defied him to find its tangents the same challenge also being sent to fermat who at once solved the problem several questions connected with the curve and with the surface and volume generated by its revolution about its axis base or the tangent at its vertex were then proposed by various mathematicians these and some analogous questions as well as the positions of the centers of mass of the solids there formed were solved by pascal in sixteen fifty eight and the results were issued as a challenge to the world wallace succeeded in solving all the questions except those connected with the center of mass pascal's own solutions were effected by the method of indivisibles and are similar to those which a modern mathematician would give by the aid of the integral calculus he obtained by summation what are equivalent to the following integrals the integral of sine phi d phi also the integral of sine squared phi d phi and also the integral of phi times sine phi d phi one limit being either zero or half pi he also investigated the geometry of the archimedean spiral these researches according to de lambert form a connecting link between the geometry of archimedes and the infinitesimal calculus of newton wallace john wallace was born at ashford on november twenty second sixteen sixteen and died at oxford on october twenty eighth seventeen o three when fifteen years old he happened to see a book on arithmetic in the hands of his brother struck with curiosity at the odd signs and symbols in it he borrowed the book and in a fortnight mastered the subject it was intended that he should be a doctor and he was sent to emmanuel college cambridge while there he kept an act on the doctrine of the circulation of the blood this is said to have been the first occasion in europe on which this theory was publicly maintained in disputation his interests however centred on mathematics he was elected to a fellowship at queen's college cambridge and subsequently took orders but on the whole adhered to the puritan party whom he rendered great assistance in deciphering the royalist despatches he however joined the moderate presbyterians in signing the remonstrance against the execution of charles i by which he incurred the lasting hostility of the independents in spite of their opposition he was appointed in sixteen forty nine to the civilian chair of geometry at oxford where he lived until his death on october twenty eighth seventeen o three besides his mathematical works he wrote on theology logic and philosophy and was the first to devise a system for teaching deaf mutes 
I confine myself to a few notes on his more important mathematical writings. They are notable partly for the introduction of the use of infinite series as an ordinary part of analysis, and partly for the fact that they revealed and explained to all students the principles of those new methods which distinguish modern from classical mathematics. The most important of Wallace's works was his Arithmetica Infinitorum, which was published in 1656. In this treatise, the methods of analysis of Descartes and Cavalieri were systematized and greatly extended, but their logical exposition is open to criticism. It at once became the standard book on the subject and is constantly referred to by subsequent writers. It is prefaced by a short tract on conic sections, which was subsequently expanded into a separate treatise. He commences by proving the law of indices, shews that x to the zero, x to the minus one, x to the minus two, and so on, represent one, one over x, one over x squared, and so on, that x to the power of one half represents the square root of x, that x to the power of two thirds represents the cube root of x squared, and that generally that x to the exponent minus n represents the reciprocal of x to the power n, and that x to the p over q represents the qth root of x to the p. Leaving the numerous algebraical applications of this discovery, he next proceeds to find by the method of indivisibles the area enclosed between the curve y equals x to the m, the axis of x, and any ordinate x equals h, and he proves that the ratio of this area is equal to that of the parallelogram on the same base and of the same altitude, and is equal to the ratio 1 over m plus 1. He apparently assumed that the same result would be true also for the curve y equals ax raised to the power m, where a is any constant and m is any number, positive or negative but he only discusses the case of which the parabola uh, of m equals 2 and that of the hyperbola in which m equals minus 1. In the latter case, his interpretation of the result is incorrect. He then shews that similar results might be written down for any curve of the form y equals the sum of ax raised to the power m and hence that if the ordinate y on a curve can be expanded in powers of the abscissa x, its quadrature can be determined. Thus he said that if the equation of a curve were y equals x to the 0 plus x to the 1 plus x squared and so on, its area would be x plus 1 half x squared plus 1 third x cubed and so on. He then applies this to the quadrature of the curves y equals quantity x minus x squared to the power 0, y equals the quantity x minus x squared to the power 1, y equals x minus x squared quantity to the power 2, y equals quantity x minus x squared to the power 3, and so on, taken between the limits x equals 0 and x equals 1, and shows that the areas are respectively 1, 1 over 6, 1 over 30, 1 over 140, and so on. He next considers the curve of the form 
y equals x to the power 1 over m and establishes the theorem that the area bounded by the curve the axis of x and the ordinate x equals 1 is to the area of the rectangle on the same base and the same altitude as m over m plus 1. This is equivalent to finding the value of the integral from 0 to 1 of x raised to the power 1 over m dx. He illustrates this by the parabola in which m equals 2. He states, but does not prove, that the corresponding result of the curve of the form y equals x raised to the p over q. This work contains also one of the earliest investigations of the formation and properties of continued fractions. A discussion that was suggested by Bruckner's use of these fractions. Wallace shewed considerable ingenuity in reducing the equations of curves to the forms given above, but as he was unacquainted with the binomial theorem, he could not affect the quadrature of the circle whose equation is y equals quantity x minus x squared to the half, since he was unable to expand this in powers of x. He laid down, however, the principle of interpolation. Thus, as the ordinate of the circle y equals x minus x squared raised to the half is a geometrical mean between the ordinate of the curve y equals quantity x minus x squared raised to the zero and y equals quantity x minus x squared raised to the one, it might be supposed that as an approximation the area of the semicircle, the integral from zero to one of quantity x minus x squared dx, which is one eighth pi, might be taken as the geometrical mean between the values of the integral from zero to one of quantity x minus x squared raised to the zero dx and the integral of zero to one of quantity x minus x squared raised to the one dx, that is, the values one and one sixth. This is equivalent to taking four multiplied by the root of two thirds, or three point two six approximately as the value of pi. But Wallace argued we have in fact a series one, one sixth, one over thirty, one over one forty, and so on, and therefore the term interpolated between one and one sixth ought to be so chosen as to obey the law of the series. This by an elaborate method, which I need not describe in detail, leads to a value for the interpolated term which is equivalent to taking pi equals 2 times 2 over 1 times 2 thirds times 4 thirds times 4 fifths times 6 fifths times 6 over 7 times 8 over 7 times 8 over 9 and so on. The subsequent mathematicians of the 17th century constantly used interpolation to obtain results which we should attempt to obtain by direct analysis. A few years later, in 1659, Wallace published a tract containing the solution of the problems on the cycloid which had been proposed by Pascal. In this, he incidentally explained how the principles laid down in his Arithmetica Infinitorum could be used for the rectification of algebraic curves, and gave a solution of the problem to rectify the semicubal parabola x cubed equals ay squared which had been discovered in 1657 by his pupil William Neal. 
this was the first case in which the length of a curved line was determined by mathematics and since all attempts to rectify the ellipse and the hyperbola had been necessarily ineffectual it had been previously supposed that no curves could be rectified as indeed descartes had definitely asserted to be the case the cycloid was the second curve rectified and this was done by wren in sixteen fifty eight early in sixteen fifty eight a similar discovery independent of that of nile was made by van Horat, and this was published by van schooten in his edition of descartes Geometrica in sixteen fifty nine van Horat's method is as follows he supposes the curve to be referred to rectangular axes if this be so and if x y be the coordinates of any point on it and n the length of the normal and if another point whose coordinates are x nu to be taken such that nu to h equals the ratio n to y where h is a constant then if ds be the element of the length of the required curve then we have by similar triangles the ratio ds to dx equals n to y therefore hds equals nu dx hence if the area of the locus of the point x nu can be found the first curve can be rectified in this way van Heret effected the rectification of the curve y cubed equals ax squared and added that the rectification of the parabola y squared equals ax is impossible since it requires the quadrature of the hyperbola the solutions given by Nile and Wallace are somewhat similar to that given by Van Heret, but no general rule is enunciated, and the analysis is clumsy. A third method was suggested by Fermat in 1660, but it is both inelegant and laborious. In 1665, Wallace published the first systematic treatise on analytical conic sections. I have already mentioned that the geometrie of Descartes is both difficult and obscure, and to many of his contemporaries to whom uh, the method was new it must have been incomprehensible. Wallace made the method intelligible to all mathematicians. This is the earliest book in which these curves are considered and defined as curves of the second degree, and not as sections of a cone on a circular base. The theory of the collision of bodies was propounded by the Royal Society in 1668 for the consideration of mathematicians. Wallace, Wren, and Huygens sent correct and similar solutions, all depending on what is now called the conservation of momentum. But while Wren and Huygens confined their theory to perfectly elastic bodies, Wallace considered also imperfectly elastic bodies. This was followed in 1669 by a work on statics, centers of gravity, and in 1670 by one on dynamics. These provide a convenient synopsis of what was then known on the subject. In 1685, Wallace published an algebra preceded by historical account of the development of the subject, which contains a great deal of valuable information. The second edition, issued in 1693 and forming the second volume of his opera, is considerably enlarged. This algebra is noteworthy as containing the first systematic use of formulae. A given magnitude is here represented by the numerical ratio which it bears to the unit of the same kind of magnitude. 
thus when wallace wants to compare two lengths he regards each as containing so many units of length this perhaps will be made clearer if i say that the relation between the space described in any time by a particle moving with uniform velocity would be denoted by wallace by the formula s equals vt where s is the number representing the ratio of the space described to the unit of length while previous writers would have denoted the same relation by stating what is equivalent to the proportion s1 over s2 equals v1t1 over v2t2 see for example newton's principia book one section one lemma ten or eleven it is curious to note that wallace rejected as absurd the now usual idea of a negative number as being less than nothing but accepted the view that it is something greater than infinity. The latter opinion may be right and consistent with the former, but it is hardly a more simple one. Fermat While Descartes was laying down the foundation of analytical geometry, the same subject was occupying the attention of another and hardly less distinguished Frenchman. This was Fermat, Pierre de Fermat, who was born near Montauban in 1601 and died at Castres in January 12, 1665, was the son of a leather merchant. He was educated at home. In 1631 he obtained the post of councillor for the local parliament at Toulouse, and he discharged the duties of the office with scrupulous accuracy and fidelity. There, devoting most of his leisure to mathematics, he spent the remainder of his life, a life which, but for a somewhat acrimonious dispute with Descartes on the validity of analysis used by the latter, was unruffled by any event which calls for special notice. The dispute was due chiefly to the obscurity of Descartes, but the tact and courtesy of Fermat brought it to a friendly conclusion. Fermat was a good scholar and amused himself by conjecturally restoring the work of Apollonius on plain loci. Except for a few isolated papers, Fermat published nothing in his lifetime, and gave no systematic exposition of his methods. Some of the most striking of his results are found after his death on loose sheets of paper written on the margins of works which he had read and annotated and are unaccompanied by any proof it is thus somewhat difficult to estimate the dates and originality of his work after his death his papers and correspondences were printed by his nephew at toulouse in two volumes sixteen seventy and sixteen seventy nine a summary of it with notes was published by brazine in toulouse in eighteen fifty three and a reprint of it was issued at berlin in eighteen sixty one a new edition is now being issued by the french government which will include some letters on his discoveries and methods in the theory of numbers recently found at leyden by m charles henry fermat was constitutionally modest and retiring and does not seem to have intended his papers to be published it is probable that he revised his notes as occasion required and that his published works represent the final form of his researches and therefore cannot be dated much earlier than sixteen sixty i shall consider separately one his investigations into the theory of numbers two 
his use in geometry of analysis and of infinitesimals, and 3. his method of treating questions of probability. 1. The theory of numbers appears to have been the favorite study of Fermat. He prepared an edition of Diophantus, and the notes and comments thereon contain numerous theorems of considerable elegance. This forms the first of two volumes of his works. Most of the proofs of Fermat are lost, and it is possible that some of them were not rigorous, an induction by analogy and the intuition of genius sufficing to lead him to correct results. The following examples will illustrate these investigations. A. If P be prime, and A be a prime to P, then A to the power of P minus 1, subtract 1, is divisible by p. That is, when you subtract 1 from a to the power of p minus 1, this is equivalent to 0 modulus p. A proof of this, first, given by Euler, is well known. A more general theorem, that of a to the power of phi of n, subtracting 1 from that result, is equivalent to 0 mod n, where a is prime to n and phi of n is the number of integers less than n and prime to it. b. A prime greater than 2 can be expressed as the difference of two square integers in one and only one way. Fermat's proof is as follows. Let n be the prime and suppose it equal to x squared minus y squared, that is, to the product x plus y times x minus y. Now, by hypothesis, the only integral factors of n are n and unity, hence x plus y equals n and x minus y equals 1. Solving these equations, we get x equals a half times n plus 1 and y equals a half times n minus 1. C. He gave a proof of the statement by Diophantus, quoted above, that the sum of the squares of two integers cannot be of the form 4n minus 1, and that he added a corollary which I take to mean that it is impossible that the product of a square and a prime of the form 4n minus 1, even if multiplied by a number prime to the latter, can be either a square or the sum of two squares. For example, 44 is a multiple of 11, which is of the form 4 times 3 minus 1 by 4, hence it cannot be expressed as a sum of two squares. He also stated that a number of the form a squared plus b squared, where a is prime to b, cannot be divided by a prime of the form 4n minus 1. d. Every prime of the form 4n plus 1 is expressible, and that in one way only, as a sum of two squares. This problem was first solved by Euler, who shewed that the number of the form 2 to the power m times 4n minus 1 can be always expressed as a sum of two squares. e. If a, b, c are integers such that a squared plus b squared equals c squared, then a times b cannot be a square. Lagrange gave a solution of this. f. The determination of a number x such that x squared n plus 1 may be a square where n is a given integer which is not a square g. There is only one integral solution of the equation x squared plus 2 equals y cubed, and there are only two integral solutions of the equation x squared plus 4 equals y cubed. 
the required solution are evidently for the first equation x equals 5 and for the second equation x equals 2 and x equals 11. This question was issued as a challenge to the English mathematicians Wallace and Digby. H. No integral values of x, y, z can be found to satisfy the equation x to the n plus y to the n equals z to the n if n be an integer greater than 2. This proposition, known as Fermat's last theorem, has acquired extraordinary celebrity from the fact that no general demonstration of it has ever been given, but there is no reason to doubt that it is true. Probably Fermat discovered its truth for the case of n equals 3, and then for the case of n equals 4. His proof for the former of these cases is lost, but that for the latter is extant, and a similar proof for the case of n equals 3 was given by Euler. These proofs depend on shewing that if three integral values of x, y, z can be found which satisfy the equation, then it will be possible to find three and other similar integers which satisfy it. In this way, finally, we shew that the equation must be satisfied by three values which obviously do not satisfy it. Thus, no integral solution is possible. It would seem that this method is inapplicable to any cases except those of n equals 3 and n equals 4. Fermat's discovery of the general theorem was made later. An easy demonstration can be given on the assumption that a number can be resolved into prime or complex factors in one and only one way. The assumption has been made by some writers, but it is not universally true. It is possible that Fermat made some such supposition, though it is perhaps more likely that he discovered a rigorous demonstration. In 1823, Legendre obtained a proof for the case of n equals 5. In 1832, Lejeune de Richelet gave one for n equals 14, and in 1840, Lamay and Lebesgue gave proofs for n equals 7. The proposition appears to be true universally, and in 1849, Coomer, by means of ideal primes, proved it to be so for all numbers except, if any, which satisfy three conditions. It is not certain whether any number can be found to satisfy these conditions, but there is no number less than 100 which does so. The proof is complicated and difficult, and there can be no doubt is based on the considerations unknown to Fermat. I may add that, to prove the truth of the proposition where n is greater than 4, it is obviously sufficient to confine ourselves to cases where n is a prime, and the first step in Coomer's demonstration is to shew that, in such cases, one of the numbers, x, y, z, must be divisible by n. A letter exists um, now in the University at Leiden, which gave an idea of Fermat's methods. The letter is undated but it would appear that, at the time Fermat wrote it, he had proved the proposition h above only for the case when n equals 3. 2. I next proceed to mention Fermat's use in geometry of analysis and of infinitesimals. It would seem from his correspondence that he had thought out the principles of analytic geometry for himself before reading Descartes' Geometrie, and had realized that from the equation, or as he calls it, 
the specific property of a curve, all its properties could be deduced. <coughs> His extant papers on geometry deal, however, mainly with the application of infinitesimals to the determination of the tangents to curves, and to the quadrature of curves, and to the questions of maxima and minima. Probably these papers are a revision of his original manuscripts, which he destroyed, and were written about 1663, but there is no doubt that he was in possession of the general idea of his methods for finding maxima and minima as early as 1628 and 1629. He obtained the subtangent to the eclipse, cycloid, cissoid, conchoid, and quadratrix by making the ordinates of the curve and a straight line the same for two points whose abscissae were x and x minus e. But there is nothing to indicate that he was aware that the process was general, and though in the course of his work he used the principle, it is probable that he never separated it, so to speak, from the symbols of the particular problem he was considering. The first definite statement of the method was due to Barrow and was published in 1669. Fermat also obtained the areas of parabolas and hyperbolas of any order, and determined the center of mass of a few simple curves and of a paraboloid of revolution. As an example of his method of solving these equations, I will quote his solution of the problem to find the area between the parabola y cubed equals px squared on the axis of x and the line x equals a. He says that if the several ordinates at the points for which x is equal to a, a times the quantity 1 minus e, and a times the quantity 1 minus e to the power of 2, and so on, be drawn, the area will be split into a number of little rectangles whose areas are respectively ae times pa squared to the power of one-third, ae times 1 minus e multiplied by the quantity pa squared times the quantity 1 minus e squared, all under a cube root. <coughs> the sum of these is p to the one-third a to the five-thirds times e divided by the quantity one minus one minus e to the five-thirds and by a subsidiary proposition, for of course he was not acquainted with the binomial theorem, he finds the limit of this when e vanishes to be three-fifths p to the one-third a to the five-thirds. The theorems last mentioned were published only after his death, and probably they were not written till he had read the works of Cavalieri and Wallace. Kepler had remarked that the values of a function immediately adjacent to and on either side of a maximum or minimum value must be equal. Fermat applied this principle to a few examples. Thus, to find the maximum value of x times the quantity a minus x, his method is essentially equivalent to taking a consecutive value of x, namely x minus e, where e is very small, and putting x times quantity a minus x equal to quantity x minus e multiplied by the quantity a minus x plus e. 
Simplifying and ultimately putting E equals 0, we get X equals half A. This value of X makes the given expression a maximum. 3. Fermat must share with Pascal the honor of having founded the theory of probabilities. I have already mentioned the problem po proposed to Pascal and which he communicated to Fermat and have there given Pascal's solution. Fermat's solution depends on the theory of combinations and will be sufficiently illustrated by the following example, the substance of which was taken from a letter dated August 24, 1654, which occurs in the correspondence with Pascal. Fermat discusses the case of two players, and supposes that the first wants two points to win and the second three points. The game will be then certainly decided in the course of four trials. Take the letters A and B and write down all the combinations that can be formed of four letters. These combinations are the following, 16 in all. Now, let big A denote the player who wants two points and big B denote the player who wants three points. Then in these 16 combinations, every combination in which A occurs twice or oftener represents a case favorable to big A, and every combination in which little b occurs three times or oftener represents a case favorable to player big B. Thus, on counting them, it will be found that there will be 11 cases favorable to A and 5 cases favorable to B, and since these cases are all equally likely, A's chance of winning the game is to B's chances as 11 is to 5. The only other problem on this subject, which as far as I know attracted the attention of Fermat, was also proposed to him by Pascal and was as follows. A person undertakes to throw a six with a die and eight throws. Supposing him to have made three throws without success, what proportion of the stake should he be allowed to take on condition of giving up his fourth throw? Fermat's reasoning is as follows. The chance of success is one in six, so that he should be allowed to take one-sixth of the stake on condition of giving up his throw. But if we wish to estimate the value of the fourth throw before any throw is made, then the first throw is worth one-sixth of the stake. The second is worth one-sixth of what remains, that is, five-thirty-sixths of the stake. The third throw is worth one-sixth of what now remains, that is, twenty-five over two-hundred-and-sixteenths of the stake. The fourth throw is worth one-sixth of what now remains, and that is, a hundred-and-twenty-five over one-thousand-two-hundred-ninety-sixths of the stake. Fermat does not seem to have carried the matter much further, but his correspondence with Pascal shews that his views on the fundamental principles of the subject were accurate. Those of Pascal were not altogether correct. Fermat's reputation is quite unique in the history of science. The problems on numbers which he had proposed long defied all efforts to solve them, and many of them yielded only to the skill of Euler. One still remains unsolved. This extraordinary achievement has overshadowed his other work. 
but in fact it is all of the highest order of excellence and we can only regret that he thought fit to write so little end of part two read by paul king pjk.scripts.mit.edu forward slash pkj